Welcome to State House Soundbites, WITF's Pennsylvania Politics Podcast. I'm Katie Meyer, State Capitol Bureau Chief for WITF. You can hear my reports on public radio stations across the state. Today, um, we are in the Capitol, not in the coffee shop as usual because it's raining outside. But joining me is Mark Levy of the Associated Press. Hey, Mark. Hey, thanks for having me. And Liz Navratil of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Thanks for having me. All right. So um, sort of a a scattershot week. Um, So we're just going to kind of go through a couple of very disparate topics. Uh, First off, uh, the governor this week announced he was going to be pushing, and we we already kind of knew that this was on his agenda, but pushing to close a uh, what a lot of people call a loophole in the state's gun uh, laws. So, uh, Mark, I know you covered that a little bit. Uh, uh, What's the situation, first of all? So uh, the um, governor came out and asked uh, for uh, the legislature to close what is called the gun show loophole. It's um, opponents of it. Gun rights groups point out that there's not really a gun show loophole per se. It's really that um, private sales of, of uh, longer barreled weapons, so rifles, um, shotguns, uh, semi-automatic rifles mm-hmm. are not subject to a, a background check. And that's what the governor would like the legislature to close. Um, there's really no momentum on it in, in a legislature that's long been friendly to uh, gun rights. Mm-hmm. And even so, I mean, this sort of loophole, I don't know how long necessarily it's been that way. It's, it seems like it's sort of a, a relic of older gun laws that didn't, uh, in private sales, just allowed them to be person to person and we didn't have to do any background checks. Right. Yeah. So handguns are all subject to background checks. Uh, are, are they over a certain length? They're not? That's right. Yeah. So um, I think it, it might be a, like, a 12-inch barreled handgun or more is not necessarily subject to uh, a background check, okay. but um, unless you're giving it to a member of your family. But otherwise, any sort of transaction or exchange of this is subject to a background check. Um, and, you know, look, opponents of, of this, uh, the gun rights groups, all, all oppose expanding background checks, from what I can tell. And they say, you know, this isn't going to prevent crime. Uh, the majority of crimes are committed with handguns. Um, Scott Perry, the U.S. representative, has been out there saying that, um, you know, the mass murders are not committed with uh, weapons that are purchased at gun shows, you know, longer, you know, uh, rifles and um, shotguns that are purchased at gun shows. Mm-hmm. And so you said no momentum on this. Um, I mean, do you see that changing anytime soon? It's, look, I mean, the Senate Majority um, Leader Jake Corman, uh, who's a Republican, said maybe it's time for that conversation but it's as as long as the gun rights groups would score this negatively on their on their voting cards it's it's very hard to see it passing the legislature yeah and now there has been some discussion recently on gun rights in the legislature they had three weeks of hearings in the house about this and um sort of the upshot of that was i think uh what many people might expect, which is Democrats and Republicans, or, or especially like rural and city lawmakers, have very different views on this, irrevocably so in a lot of cases. But one bill did come out of it. Uh, it's it's really more of a crime victims bill, but it does have a gun component. Um, it's the one if uh, someone's under a restraining order now, they uh, 
they don't have to they don't have to give their guns up to like family members or like friends they have to give them up to like police right so, so there's two things going on yeah. in this bill it passed the senate unanimously right. it had some last minute changes negotiated by gun rights groups so that they were neutral on it no one was scored negatively for voting for it uh i think the two key things it does is it uh requires a uh person who is the subject of a domestic violence restraining order to give up their guns. Right. Um, previously or under current law, it's really been up to a judge's uh, discretion. Okay. And, and the proponents of this bill say that in 14% of these cases, a judge orders someone to give up their guns. So that's number one. Uh, number two, the the people who you have to give up your guns to under current law can include just about anybody who doesn't live with you. Mm -hmm. It could include your best friend, a family member, your next door neighbor, as long as they sign something that says, yes, I'm taking custody of these guns. And there were some concerns that some people were essentially transferring them to folks who lived in the same house or next door or in close proximity. So the question becomes, if you're transferring it, but you still have access to it, what what is actually accomplished? Right, and that's a great point. And so this bill would change it to a, you have to give it up to law enforcement, a, 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 a licensed gun dealer, mm. or your lawyer. So, and that's, again, sort of a... a- sort of a crime victims bill but there's a gun component and that seems to be like pretty much what the legislature can agree on right and not much beyond that it was propelled primarily by domestic violence groups yeah Um, but it was supported by uh gun control groups Mm -hmm. anti-gun violence groups and it's in the house and there's some sentiment that'll get a vote in the house Mm -hmm. and do you think it'll pass Look, it passed the Senate unanimously. If the gun rights groups are neutral on it, then those are those are important factors. Yeah, absolutely. Um, then moving to another sort of hearing that we saw, just another issue that's been kicking around the legislature for a long time. Um, the Senate had a redistricting hearing. Uh, this was kind of notable. The previous week, the House had had a redistricting hearing in which they had... Uh, yeah, and we talked about this on the podcast. They gutted the bill in question. The bill would have created an independent citizens commission for redistricting purposes. Uh, and that was, you know, aimed at taking some power away from the legislature. They changed the bill to give more power to the legislature. So that was controversial. And the Senate had a different approach to the situation, right? Right. So uh, I don't know if the other two of you guys watched the hearing. I watched the hearing. It was... Um mostly um, uh, a friendly hearing, but with um, concern being expressed by the, 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 the chairman of the Senate State Government Committee, um, Mike Fulmer from Lebanon County, about who would actually get onto this committee, how you would get them on there, how in theory it's supposed to be nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. And this has been the sort of the question Republicans, I think, Republicans especially have raised about this committee concept since its inception, really. They've been saying, well, <laughs> who's going to be, like, accountable for these people? Like, these people are just citizens. You know, can they really be responsible for drawing these maps? In some states, yeah, it's, it's worked out. That's the way they do it. Um, so, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I mean, this is something that would take, again, we've talked about this a lot, a constitutional amendment. I, just, I mean, if, for something to happen, for a successful amendment to happen, doesn't there need to be, like, a lot of consensus 
Yeah, uh, there does. And it's uh, and over a long period of time that needs to hold together for a constitutional amendment to happen. And it's a, and it's also important uh, to remember why we're here. We're here because Republicans who controlled state government in 2011 created a map of congressional districts that uh, quickly became widely viewed as among the most gerrymandered in the country and um, were struck down by a Democratic majority on the state Supreme Court in, in January and mm-hmm. redrawn. So, you know, <laughs> and there's been a lot of acrimony about that. Yes. So we there is a system of drawing these districts, but um, it, it requires people to um, maybe do it in a responsible way. And, um, you know, we're here now after uh, six years of of complaining about how it was done. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that people are still trying to establish, too, is how do you measure when a map has been blatantly gerrymandered? Right. These legal cases told us that that prior map was not going to meet constitutional muster, but we really didn't come up with, like, come out with a clear formula of right. here's the threshold, there's the threshold. Yeah. So you'll hear some of that sprinkled throughout. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people hoped the Supreme Court would give better standards for what's constitutional and what's not, and they they really didn't. They just said, no, this one's not. So, and they said, you know, it you know, it wasn't compact enough, wasn't contiguous enough. But I think people were like looking for numbers. They were looking for a way to measure. Right. And 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 so it will be sort of a subjective test of were you trying to keep communities of interest together? Were you trying to draw along county boundaries? Uh, were you trying to um, make these districts compact and recognizable shapes or yeah. were you bending them for partisan advantage? And a lot of it, as you kind of were indicating, has to do with like intention and, you know, what your <laughs> what your goal is in drawing a map a certain way. So it's you know convoluted process. You can listen to literally any podcast we've done in the last two months and we will have talked about it. But uh, we'll digress on that subject for now. Uh, another one I want to bring up, you guys both covered the, uh, a, a lovely gubernatorial debate we had this week um, for the GOP candidates for governor. Um, what, Liz, were your takeaways from that debate? So this was the second-to-last debate, at least the second-to-last televised one, uh, prior to the primary, and we know it had potentially one of their largest TV audiences, so they kind of had that in the background. Um, We saw a lot of Mango sort of following his previous patterns, uh, coming out strong against Scott Wagner, really focusing on him. Um, Laura Ellsworth, I think, sort of surprised everyone with a kind of impassioned plea at the end, um, directed at the voters as opposed to at her competitors. I don't know if that was on air or if that was just on the on the website afterwards Mm -hmm. because a part of it was online. Um, And we heard I think throughout we've always been hearing references about Tom Wolf but there seemed to be more of them coming up so they're kind of clearly keeping November in mind and not just May. Mm-hmm. And Mark, did you have any just takeaways? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, Paul Mango went after uh, Scott Wagner. The um, the uh, in hanging over the whole thing is sort of the very sharp elbowed uh, attack TV ads that are running across the state between the two. Some have called them the nastiest they've ever seen. People who have watched Pennsylvania politics for a very long time. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that, but no. it's it certainly they were eye-opening ads, and um, and Laura Ellsworth, who doesn't have enough money to run uh, TV ads, at least not in her campaign account, uh, <laughs> is um, 
taking advantage of that by saying, look, I'm the one behaving honorably here. And she made a, a very uh, a remarkable point uh, during the debate that um, these two men have dredged up as much as they could to attack each other, Paul Mango and Scott Wagner. It's given, I think, what she called a war chest to Tom Wolf that he doesn't deserve to have, but he will have. And... Um, and that, uh, I think, her implication is that we'll, we'll mortally wound Scott Wagner or Paul Mango in, in the uh, general election contest. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was certainly a strong argument that I think caught a lot of people's attentions about this war chest idea. But at the end of the day, I also find it very hard to believe that folks in Democratic circles wouldn't be dredging stuff up on whoever wins. Sure. Yeah, uh-huh. presumably they already know about all that. And, um, and, and Laura Ellsworth's um, appeal also will be that she's more moderate on the issues than Paul uh, Paul Mangor, Scott Wagner. So that's probably what she'll have to get elected on if she's going to be elected. Yeah. And Mark, you mentioned when we were talking before that this was sort of a chaotic debate a little bit. Um, I mean, did they get onto the issues at all? They did, but I didn't. I didn't feel that there was a lot of new ground broken. They have made um, maybe about eight appearances together, um, but th- this this debate seemed remarkable for the way they did go after each other. Would you agree with that, Liz? I would definitely agree with that. And I think some of the policy stuff that we heard was very tailored for this audience, which was. Um, the live audience was some primarily folks who live in basically a senior living community in Lancaster County. So we heard a lot of questions about like nursing home regulation and Medicaid and dairy farmers, things that you might not get in, say, a Pittsburgh setting. Gotcha. So how long till the election now? Just to- May 15th. So we are uh, under three weeks. Under three weeks. All right. It's going to be a long three weeks. <laughs> well, I was going to say, lots still happening. Three more Tuesdays. Three more Tuesdays. Um, good way to look at it. Another thing that happened this week, I think one of the biggest things in Pennsylvania news in, in the national context that happened was Meek Mill was released from prison. Um, the rapper, he had been uh, sentenced to two to four years for a parole violation. It was controversial because the parole violation was for a parole he had gotten onto about 10 years previously. So he was on parole for a very, very long time. And so now he'd been trying to get out. Um, he had the Philly DA Larry Krasner on his side in that. Um, and in fact, when he did get released this week, he uh, shouted out Krasner on Twitter, which I thought was a nice, um, you know, confluence of the DA and rap communities that you don't often um, so anyway, none of us really covered Meek Mill in any um, depth, but what we have covered is justice law in Pennsylvania and how it's formed and who wants what and why it's such a, a hard thing for this state to change. So, um, Mark, I know this has been something you've covered for a long time. Um, this, a lot of people have said, speaks to the issues in Pennsylvania's justice system, this whole situation with Meek Mill. Right. So the the issues of a massive parole and probation population, people going back to jail or prison for parole and probation violations, a massive number of people who are either addicted to something or have a mental health uh, issue, uh, packing the jails and prisons and the quest to find a better way to help them. Yeah. Uh, 
on the street where uh, in theory they could have a stable life but also get the counseling they need. Mm-hmm. And so I do want to, I mean, there was actually a, a study that was released literally the day he got out of prison. Um, it was from Columbia University's Justice Lab. And they had said, you know, the highest, we have the highest parole rate in the country. Um, it's actually, it's almost triple the national average. So why? And, why it, is, and it's rising, too. And it's rising. It's, it's rising. Why is it so high? I, I mean, I I mean, it, there's lots of reasons, I'm sure, but... It, 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 in part, it reflects uh, the huge incarcerated population in Pennsylvania yeah. that, um, and, and, and the sentencing guidelines that are here in the state. And so you have a uh, senator, um, a state senator, Stuart Greenleaf, who's chairman of the, Judici- the Judiciary Committee, which essentially produces all the crime and punishment laws, um, trying to create uh, an atmosphere where nonviolent offenders are not incarcerated for unusually long periods, if, if, if at all, um, and where the, the state sort of turns the parole process less into a, a cop and criminal thing and more into like a social worker mm-hmm. uh, process. And he's trying to undo what he thinks uh, were a bunch of laws in the 90s and 80s that, that didn't work, uh, incarceration right. laws. Basically moving from that uh, really tough on crime ethos of the 80s and 90s which is not was not only in Pennsylvania that was sort of a nationwide idea that that's how to deal with crime but uh, turning that into something that's more reform oriented trying to get people out of the system reduce recidivism things like that Um, and so this has been something that we've seen from the Wolf administration as well. I know Greenleaf, Greenleaf, a Republican who was previously sort of a crime and punishment guy earlier in his career, is working with Wolf, working with um, Correction Secretary John Wetzel. Um, and there is sort of a different ethos, I think, under this administration when it comes to justice. Right? And, and yeah, and it's not unique to, to Pennsylvania no, either. These are things going on nationwide. Um, but Pennsylvania is remarkable for the size of its incarcerated population. Yeah. Um, it has it has a bunch of problems with the system. Um, depending on how you look at it, they could be small or medium-sized problems that all add up to one big problem. Um, I think one thing they're trying to do is uh, get a handle on all the, the 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 different probation systems in every county and get and get accurate data on how many people are incarcerated, why are they incarcerated, how long are they staying in prison, um, and how and then move from that to how they can get people out of of jails and back on the streets and getting help with their mental illness or their addiction and in a stable job. Yeah. And, and it's a really complex layered system where yeah. some people are supervised by the state, some people are supervised by county offices, some people who have like convictions in different counties might have something even more complicated where everyone's trying to coordinate and a lot of these probation and parole officers who were doing the actual day-to-day work are just totally swamped. They have huge caseloads. Um, dozens, if not hundreds of people, they might be supervising depending on which division they're assigned to and so on and so forth. So it's a really complex issue. And, and for years, we, we had a rising parole population and, and a static uh, parole agent population. So you had parole agents who were just overwhelmed. Now yeah. the Wolf administration is trying to fix that. But, um, I mean, there's just so many problems with the parole and, and the probation systems and, and who's in prisons that it's almost too numerous to really discuss in one setting. Yeah. And so one of the things um, I, I thought was striking about the whole like Greenleaf Wolf partnership is 
well, Greenleaf is retiring at the end of this year. He is out. And uh, whoever takes over his committee may not have the same, you know, agenda goals as he does. So he's trying to get as much past as he can right now. I actually, I spoke to him for a little while this week, but, uh, and he was saying, um, what's interesting is like, it's, it's not necessarily getting it easier for him to pass these bills through his committee now that he, he's been trying for such a long time because the committee changes, you know, every session. And, uh, this year there's more people on that committee he says that are very skeptical of his ideas about justice reform and so that is something that I think Pennsylvania is also notable for you know a lot of people still really do believe in this tough on crime approach they think you know you see it um, sort of build a lot of the time as being like crime victims against criminals and if you pass something that's a uh, you know for the rights of incarcerated people then that is something that's against crime victims like do you guys see that dichotomy sometimes as well oh yeah without question yeah the rhetoric around this gets really charged and it's also one of those issues where like it's very easy to find the example of the person who ends up being pulled back in on a violation that a lot of people would consider really minor and you wonder why they're back in then but it's also really easy to find the examples of the guy who was supposed to be monitored who wasn't and then went on to do something violent. So if you're looking for examples, they're really easy to find on both sides of the equation. People tell a lot of anecdotes when they're trying to support themselves in this issue. I think think one bill that's emblematic of what you mentioned about um, Greenleaf is that um, the Senate passed legislation that would essentially merge the Department of Corrections and the Board of Probation and Parole. And that has not it passed the Senate, hasn't passed the House, and what I heard from the House Judiciary Committee during a hearing on it was a lot of skepticism about um, should the jailer and the person who lets people out on parole be the same person? Um, should they be under one roof? And you know, the Wolf administration is in favor of this, and they've said it, it would, you know, the Board of Probation and Parole would remain independent. Um, we're trying to merge them for uh, efficiency purposes. And it would save money, probably. It, in theory, it would save money. You, you have issues um, where um, you know, halfway houses are operated by the Department of Corrections, but it's, the, but it's the parolees from the parole board who are going into them, and it, there's all sorts of delay issues and, and complicated questions with finding a home for a parolee who's getting out and how the agencies communicate. But you know that the house not to mention the the DA's association which is influential in the building were very skeptical about the move of merging these two agencies and so it never went anywhere mm-hmm. and you see that with a lot of things and i think i mean as much as we say you know the administration is sort of moving on this issue um some individual lawmakers are moving on it there's been a consensus in other states that we're going to move away from this again tough on crime ethos It's not changing very much in the legislature to the point where we really haven't seen many of these bills get successful, I don't think, right? There was a package of bills that moved in 2012, and uh, one remarkable provision in it was that it made it, uh, it essentially changed the rules for when you send a a technical parole violator back to prison. Mm. And that is is one reason why we're seeing the prison population drop, but the parole population is is, is rising. So that... Um, had the intended effect of keeping more parolees on the street where, in theory, they can get help for addiction or counseling but try to hold a stable job. Mm. All right. Um, I think we'll leave that conversation there. 
Anything you guys are watching in the next week or two, other than the gubernatorial election? Well, we've got a U.S. Senate election, a, yeah. a Republican primary, and a lot of crazy congressional primaries, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of interesting sort of state um, legislative races as well. Yeah. I know in Pittsburgh, for example, there are some DSA-type candidates who... Democratic socialists. Uh, yes, yes. Sort of more progressives. Um, at least that's how they build themselves. Uh, taking on some of the more... Um, truthfully, some of the Costas, um, who are a big political name in the Pittsburgh world. Um, Dom, Jay, and... Jay is not up, but Paul and Dom are up. Um, So it'll be interesting to see if that provides any sort of insight into how Pittsburgh is leaning post-Trump election. Um, Philly, we have quite a few um, sort of longer-term representatives or senators who are leaving now. Um, So we'll have some newcomers coming in there. I don't think anybody expects a giant shift of power in the legislature, but it would certainly be interesting to see um, if, you know, maybe any of the majorities, maybe the gap closes, or maybe there are more moderates as opposed to less conservative. It would be interesting to watch, though, whether sort of the old guard Democrats in the Pittsburgh area... If anyone loses to mm-hmm. a the socialists, young, the socialists, <laughs> the socialists what is are this? coming. I haven't heard about this. The DSA, part. so Democratic Socialists of America, it's gained a lot of traction, especially on like the social media platforms and things like that. Um, and I think this election is a notable one for them, really starting to actually run candidates. Are they Bernie Kratz? They're adjacent. Yeah, I would say that that's kind of the the ethos there. Um, that's the closest thing I think we've ever seen in the mainstream to what the DSA. Is. But yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of, I think there's been a move, especially among young people, of being, you know, it's it's less taboo to call yourself a socialist now. And so they're doing it. And they are, I think Bernie Sanders is probably the closest thing that we've seen, again, in the mainstream. Well, and what we don't know is that we have the primary coming up, but... I mean, the candidate who loses in any race could try and run a writing campaign. They could try and do any number of things. So, yeah. And when we get closer to the actual election, um, I think it's, you know, worth noting in the legislature, we mentioned Stuart Greenleaf before. He's out. Charles McElhinney is out. These longtime senators who have Republicans who kind of held these moderate districts for a very long time. Those seats are going to be ripe for Democrats, as are going to be. A lot of seats, more seats than we've seen in the House and Senate than in a while. So not as Liz says that we're going to like change the majority necessarily, but it's going to be interesting to see if the Democrats make up the ground that they've been losing for years. So um, on that, anything else to add, you guys? I guess just as long as I brought up Bernie, I yeah. just want to point out that he just endorsed in the lieutenant governor's race the wide open Democratic <laughs> primary to challenge the sitting lieutenant governor, Democrat Mike Stack. So Wait, who did he who did he endorse? John, John, John Fetterman. Fetterman. That surprises me not at all. Who ran in the U.S. Senate primary in 2016 and is the mayor of Braddock outside Pittsburgh and is... If you see him once, you remember him for the rest of your life. He's six foot eight, bald, and goateed, and I tattooed. believe he also does and uh, tattoos for like homicide victims. Yeah, he does. I've heard that. Yeah, uh, strikingly high profile for a mayor of Braddock. But um, all right, so we've got that endorsement on the books, and just waiting to see who Bernie endorses next. All right, we will leave it there. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week.